Citizen, The Training, Chapter 29. Even though Tracy passed the test, he decided to move on. He had vacation time saved up for a trip he had planned to take with Teddy to China, so Tracy left WebMD and got a job at Global Payments. Once there, he rolled out an Oracle implementation in 30 days for testing. It went live in 60 days, and Tracy realized God's wisdom. While Tracy developed the help desk at WebMD, he learned how to be a consultant from the back end. Because Tracy solved independent contractors' issues, he learned what they did. Tracy also learned what independent contractors needed, how to manage them, and how not to manage them from his experience after the hostile takeover. The end result was that Swirl Sutra and the help desk prepared Tracy for the next level. With that completed, the tall, shiny silver figure gave Tracy another directive that prepared Tracy to leave Atlanta. I need you to buy a desk, he said. But I have a desk, Tracy said. Tracy had a drafting table, but he didn't work much at home. If he did, he used his laptop. Yet Tracy did as instructed, got in his jeep, and went to a warehouse superstore on his lunch break to buy a desk. When Tracy got there, he was stalled. Sit here and praise me, he said. I thought you wanted me to buy a desk, Tracy said. But the unction was strong, so Tracy didn't get out of Bruce. Instead, Tracy finished his fast food and sat in the parking lot listening to praise music. That evening, he went over to Jack and Kathy's, which by this time was standard protocol. Tracy met Jack and Kathy after he moved to Atlanta because Jack and Kathy's next-door neighbors were best friends with Ed Michaels. Tracy had met Ed Michaels years earlier when he lived in Chattanooga, and Ed was an integral part of the convoluted path through this season of Tracy's life. Ed was 15 years older than Tracy and didn't look it. However, in gay years, that was a few lifetimes. The difference between Stonewall and allowing gays in the military under Don't Ask, Don't Tell was quite a gap, to say nothing of the effects AIDS had on their generations. The bridge was Ed Michaels himself and his house. Similar to Dale, Ed was an engineer for the Tennessee Valley Authority for nearly 40 years and worked in the nuclear industry since its infancy. Ed Michaels was a tall, handsome man who maintained carefully coiffed strawberry blonde hair and made no apologies. Ed camped gay banter as well as he spun his colossal collection of vinyl, which was how the friendship started. At first, it was a small after-party once Alan Gold's discotheque had last call, but that was all it took. Back then, Ed lived in a modest suburban neighborhood of Chattanooga. 
His house was on a small rise, which allowed easy sight lines to the living room's most striking feature, a massive disco ball. Ed's furniture was also on casters, so the space could go from sitting area to dance floor in less than 30 seconds. The 60s retractable lamp made space for the bar once the dining room table and chairs were against the wall. The disco ball and its lights were wired directly to the switches. The adjacent spare bedroom was shelved floor to ceiling and wall to wall with records from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Very few recordings made it into the collection past that date because by the 90s, according to Ed, the music really did die. But the house came alive when the mobile DJ booth was rolled from the spare bedroom, the furniture was moved, and the disco ball was switched on, which, with the right crowd, happened simultaneously. And to say Ed Michaels was colorful was so inadequate it could be considered a hate crime. He was a true child of the barefoot, hippie-turned-gay generation, and there wasn't a blind or curtain in the house. That way, according to Ed, passers-by might join the party. And it was true, from the street, Ed's bare chest and cut-off jeans were plainly visible dancing between his vinyl vault and full DJ setup in the living room. On weekends, mirrored slices of light spun from the disco ball, which made the first floor twirl and flash into the night. Years later, after Ed retired and moved to Atlanta, the disco operation was moved to his basement. This had hot pink walls and was decorated in a 1970s Pimp Daddy style where Ed did disco yoga. However, back when Tracy was in Chattanooga, Ed Michaels was an oasis in the desert. At the time, Tracy had a mostly tragic relationship with the idiot friend, as Ed called him. On the occasion of one of their breakups, Tracy needed cheering up, and it was cocktail hour on a Friday afternoon. Girl, Ed exclaimed, you can't be looking all sad and droopy like that. You might ruin the party. And Ed looked at Tracy carefully. I know. You need a martini. Have you ever had a martini? No, Tracy said, who was not a big drinker of any kind. So Ed fixed a dirty martini without fruit. Tracy took the glass, held it up to the light, and wondered why it looked so boring. What's the matter? Ed lilted. You need some olives to swirl, girl, cause I can make it pretty. I just don't like all that loveliness to have anything drowning in it. No, that's okay, Tracy said, and gulped it like chugging a beer. Oh, my, Ed screamed. I never saw anyone do that before. Are y'all okay? Tracy was fine with that one and the ones he learned to sip that followed. It was Veterans Day weekend, so the disco ball spun with red, white, and blue lights. But the cops saw fire engine red and cop car blue, and assumed there was an emergency. Once they parked out front, the policemen realized nothing was on fire except for the disco inferno. 
Because the doorbell couldn't be heard, they knocked. Tracy heard this and moved his martini to his other hand to open the door. In front of him stood two officers. One was a handsome Latino, the other was a chiseled study in manhood with sandy hair, and both were buff and fresh from the academy. Ed! Tracy yelled. Did you hire strippers? When Ed saw the uniforms, he turned the music down to dinner party volume. The crowd meandered toward the kitchen to be closer to the rear sliding glass door. Judging by the previous decibel level, the young cadets made the obvious choice, except it was Chattanooga, and it was Ed Michaels' house. We heard a complaint about the noise from the neighbors, the sandy cop said. Oh, really? Ed said and giggled. <laughs> That's funny, Miss Thang. Watch this. And Ed turned to his guests and yelled, Which one of you neighbors complained about the music being too loud? It's not loud enough, came from the back. And I need another drink. Vindicated, Mr. Michaels turned back to face the young officers. Mary, Ed said, the problem with you is you're all brand new. All the neighbors are here. We do this every Friday night, so you might as well get used to it. The hot cops were a little confused, and were unplugged by Ed's easy manner that wasn't accusatory. He was just explaining. Now I do understand, Ed said. Y'all saw those red and blue lights flashing up and down the street, and y'all thought you needed to come and save us. And Ed chuckled. <laughs> Which I personally think is just wonderful, especially as yummy as you two are. But don't worry. The light on my disco ball will be red and green for Christmas before too long. The cops couldn't move. Nothing close to this was in any of their training, but Ed smiled and left the door open as he went behind his DJ table. So, Ed concluded, Y'all welcome to come in and dance if you want, but ain't nothing going to be turned down up in here. And the real Miss Thing pumped the music back up to hoots and cheers. Of course, Ed Michaels was out as much during the day as he was at night. After seeing Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, he and Tracy ran home. Ed pulled the rainbow flag off his living room wall, and they went to the garage to put the top down on his blue convertible Mustang. Once they affixed the declaration to the back seat, they drove to Signal Mountain, with their gayness flapping as a cape, and blasted Donna Summer to the summit and back. The important thing was, over the years, Tracy met Ed's close friends in Atlanta, who routinely went up to Chatta Vegas to party. When Tracy moved down to Atlanta, they had a dinner party. It was there that Tracy was introduced to their neighbors, Jack and Kathy. They were in their early thirties and had an adorable two-year-old daughter. Hello, everyone. Tracy here. 
I hope you're enjoying my story. We'll let you know how to support this podcast later. But for now, the best thing you can do is follow us and share it with your friends and family. So if you like what you're hearing, please help us out by telling people about it. And thanks again. Now, Tracy went back to work after he praised God in the Superstore's parking lot. Then he told a few co-workers about the experience not buying a desk. That night, he told Jack and Kathy over dinner. That's interesting, Jack said. How big a desk? He didn't say, Tracy said. We have my dad's old accounting desk, Kathy said. Kathy's father had died a few years earlier, and they were downsizing her mother to something more reasonable. They had emptied out the house, and the desk was the last piece of furniture left. We would have to clean it up, Kathy continued. But it's a nice desk. Why don't you come by this weekend? If you like it, you can have it. Okay, Tracy said. I'll come by with the jeep. You're gonna need something a lot bigger than Bruce, Jack said. Okay, I'll see if I can borrow Ed Michael's truck, Tracy said. This is two giant-sized bookcases and a legal-sized desk, Jack said. You're gonna need a flatbed and some help. How much help? Tracy asked. At least five people, Jack concluded. The next day, Tracy tried to round up friends from work, but they were busy bungee jumping or other extreme things. He felt he had to at least show up to apologize, so Tracy met Jack and Kathy at her family's home. The large house was on a corner lot in the outskirts of Atlanta. They showed Tracy the desk, and then Kathy looked at Jack with a tilt of her head. Hey, Tracy, she said. Do you mind if we talk for a minute? There's a nice garden out back. Sure, Tracy said, and went outside behind the house, and the backyard was lovely. After a few moments, Jack and Kathy returned and showed Tracy the rest of the house like a realtor would. They pointed out the mellowness of the hardwood floors in the living room, the great kitchen and full basement. Nothing needed repair, with the exception of an updated paint job. Didn't you say you were looking for something, like a rent to buy? Kathy asked. At one time I was, Tracy said. But the market isn't too appealing right now, so I stopped. I know what you mean, Kathy said. How much are you paying in rent? Nine hundred a month, Tracy said. How about if we work out a lease purchase agreement for a hundred more than you're paying now? Kathy asked. That way we won't have to move the desk, Jack said, and Tracy felt his nudge. All along, you thought this was about a desk, he said. What the tall, shiny silver figure meant was that Tracy needed a desk to meet with clients. From this point on... Tracy would only have consulting jobs and work from a seated position. At the time, Tracy didn't understand the desk represented his new position in life. 
He did think the house was everything he had ever wanted. It was on a quiet street, had a huge basement to work out in, a fireplace, outdoor patio and grill, and plenty of rooms for a family to come visit. So Tracy moved in, and for the next year Atlanta was good. Then, almost as quickly, circumstances dried up. Once again, confusion, murk, and sadness gathered strength. As the economy shrank and layoffs loomed, God led Tracy to study Psalm 91. Tracy studied it for a year before he was released from his assignment. During that time, the second dot-com bubble burst. Almost overnight, the wave the tech industry rode crashed, swept many out to sea, and the party heralded by Elton John was finally over. This brook is drying up, Lord, Tracy said, as he had said before. And you haven't spoken yet as to what to do next. Start packing up the house, he said. Then I want you to move in with your parents in Columbus. But, Lord, Tracy protested, I can go back to West Virginia. I have the key to Granny's house right here. And Tracy picked up his keychain. No, Tracy, he said. Before you can go any further, you need to understand your family bloodline, and only your father can tell you that. After Tracy got over the shock, he called his dad to tell him what he heard. Harry was surprised, but agreed to the plan. Tracy packed and put everything else in storage. Then Tracy stalled, much like he did before he left Akron for Chattanooga. Tracy stayed put in his beautiful empty house, hoping for a different confirmation. Instead, God gave Tracy another directive, which was encouragement for something in his future. Tracy called these power pellets, and the encouragement was like bonuses in a video game that allowed the player to keep going. In terms of this world, they were rewards the flesh could understand. Look up Hunga teachers online, he said. Tracy did, and Mo's name popped up, Tracy's friend from college days. Mo was listed as an instructor in Florida. By this time, Mo had trained at one of the number one Hunga schools in the country, which was a highly specialized system of Kung Fu. Tracy called, and he immediately recognized the voice that answered. Is this Mo? Tracy asked, and there was a stunned silence on the other end. Who used to go to West Virginia Tech back in the 80s? Trace? Mo asked. Is that you? It sure is, buddy, Tracy said. What have you been up to? Oh, this and that, Mo said. It's good to hear your voice. I see you're teaching. You could say that. When can you come down? It would be great to see you again, so we can work out. Well, I'm kind of in a bind right now, Tracy admitted. The dot-com burst hit pretty hard here. I understand. It did here, too. Tracy couldn't find more to say, and Mo understood. But no problem, Mo decided. Stay in touch, and when you get back on your feet, 
I'll be here. That means a lot, buddy, Tracy said, and held back a tear. I will. Then Tracy sat in his huge house. His birthday came and went, and Tracy waited for an alternate directive other than living with his father in Ohio. Then, at 5 a.m. on April 29, 2003, a rare earthquake shook Atlanta. The next night, Creflo Dollar explained at Bible study. He said that whenever there was an earthquake, God released something in the earth, and a change was about to happen. The next day, Tracy closed and locked the door of what he thought was his dream house. Before he left Atlanta, Tracy sat in the parking lot of World Changers Church, and he had communion in Bruce. Then, with the last money he had, Tracy went north. He drove by Granny and Moody's house and headed west for Columbus. A decade had passed since Tracy had left Akron. His time in the desert of Chattanooga and the proving ground of Atlanta was finished, and Tracy finally crossed back over the Ohio state line. This concludes Dual Citizen, The Training, read by the authors Tracy Staples Wilson and Bob Zuber. We also thank Miss Emily Moore for providing our musical interludes. In The Arrival, the final book of the Dual Citizen trilogy, Tracy closes in on the picture he was shown on his lap. As more is revealed, the two worlds Tracy has experienced since he was three collide. So stay tuned, because it's going to get really interesting. And we hope you find your place at the table. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you would like to purchase the book, Dual Citizen, it is available on Amazon. Be sure to search for Dual Citizen, The Connection. All three books, The Connection, The Training, and The Arrival, are available in print as well as on Kindle. Dual Citizen, The Connection, is also available on Audible. So, if you would like to skip ahead and see how everything turns out, feel free. But don't tell your friends the ending. Thanks again, and we hope everyone will find their place at the table. <laughs>